This is CliffCentral.com. Youth Leadership Platform. Here's a powerful thing. I mean, it's got a lot of firepower. If you can figure out a way to wrestle that fear, to push you from behind rather than stand in front of you, that's very powerful. I have agreed. Multiplying leadership, moving society the millennial way. You don't want to end up going after goals and dreams and neglect yourself. Welcome to the Youth Leadership Platform with your host, Bongani Dao. This is the instrument of your liberation. See, old friend, I broke more soldiers than you did. Identify yourself to the world. Welcome back to the Youth Leadership Platform with your host Bongani Dao. Follow the conversation on at Simply Bongani across all social media. YP Cliff Central on Twitter and Instagram. Youth Leadership Platform on Facebook. Like we promised, we are continuing the conversation today with um, our famous author, um, powerful woman, very incisive author of Lost Where We Belong, Claire L. Bell. Welcome back to the Youth Leadership Platform, Claire. Hi, Bongani. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much. So, so, so last week we left it off at, I think it was chapter six, where we were speaking about faith and, you know, some, some of, of, of the memories that you have, uh, visiting the hometown of Walter Sisulu. One interesting question that I'd like to, to ask, I guess, to, to begin the second leg of, of the question. You speak a bit about faith as in faith in, in terms of religion and some of the questions that you had. So I'd like us to explore the religious side of Claire L. Bell. <laughs> um, well, I'm, uh, I grew up in Benoni and it was very, uh, uh, popular at the time to go to the youth church on a Sunday night. But I think it was more to see the boys and to go to your than anything else. Um, so, uh, and I actually, in latter years, I've actually had quite a lot of anger towards the church because um, I feel like, you know, we used to have discussions about things like what is justice, what is fairness, what is love. And we were living in a society that was anything but just, anything oh, but yes. fair, anything oh, yes. but full of love. So I have a very complex relationship with the church itself. And in fact, in the book, I, um, in Lost Where We Belong, I go back and see my minister at the Methodist Church in Benoni and actually hold him to account in some ways and ask him why we weren't talking about these things, mm. why this wasn't on the table at the time. Um, so in terms of my own spirituality in this day and age, um, I think I'm some, one of those people, which some people will roll their eyes at, but I'm more spiritual than a kind of Christian per se. You know, I have, I, I see there's so much coincidence, serendipity, so much beauty that happens in the world. Um, you have faith in something, someone comes along and helps you just when you need it. So I, I completely believe that there's something bigger than all of us. But um, I have a bit of a lot of discomfort with them attributing it to certain institutions because I've seen so much injustice um, delivered from those institutions. Interesting. So do you believe in God, though? I believe in God. Okay. But I I have a problem. (laughs) 
<laughs> the problem with all the prophets like Jesus and Muhammad and all of those, because I feel often there have been, it seems to me often there have been, oh, you better not put this on actually, because if I say something about Muhammad, I'll be, I'll be a harass in my head. Please cut that. Uh, oh my God. Um, just say, I have a bit of an issue with how the, can we just say this? I have a problem with how the texts of the religious texts have often been used to oppress women, oppress societies, um, and justify, um, you know, unfair practices and like power slavery. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I, I have a huge problem with that. Um, and I think it's not God's fault. It's our fault. So looking at history, did you get a, a bit of a, a cognitive dissonance uh, when it came to some of the re- religious ideals that you once espoused? Um, you know, I mean, I'm not sure I espoused them that much. Like I said, I think I was more interested in seeing the boys. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've always been a – I studied philosophy. Okay. At university and I've always been a thinker and enjoyed contemplating – Things like what is morality, you know, what is what is justice, what is fairness, um, and uh, I don't feel that the the church is the only way to contemplate those things. Um, also, I, I have experienced, you know, I have in my in my sort of thirties, I have been on quite a few Buddhist meditation retreats. Okay, and uh, with Buddhism, which doesn't worship a god per se, you know, Buddha was a person um, who was basically using meditation and, and, and practice and breath and and, and uh, introspection to question life, to question what it is to live a good life, what it is to suffer, um, what it is to be attached, what it is to not be attached to to our uh, to our lives and to our hopes and dreams. I am um, I find that Buddhism offers a lot of um, help, like practical help, assistance in navigating and contemplating life. But often Christianity, to me, can give you um, sort of, you know, the aim or it can give you the sort of where you'd like to be, but doesn't seem to give you a lot of help along the way for mm, me. Mm. So um, I found a lot of support from Buddhism um, because I, I love I love contemplating life, our existence, who we are um, and trying to be a better person myself. And I think that, um, yeah, any tools that we can find along the way from the spiritual world, from the analytical world um yeah that we should go we should gather them up in our arms before, before we get into the book I'm, I'm i'm quite fascinated because i also enjoy uh, philosophy well, how would you define morality well define morality yes um well it's to be moral to live a good life okay yes it doesn't harm others um that perhaps doesn't harm yourself um that is a benefit to and it's to who is of, to who is of benefit I guess it's to benefit of all all humans but also to animals to our earth to our plants to our healthy life for that would benefit and in which we can all be nurtured and grow mm-hmm. and of course there are many there are many needs that human beings have um, you know the need to eat the need to survive the need to even the need to have vices. Um, sometimes you, you know, you need to kind of let off steam. Um, that's, that's also very human. It's not, you know, can't be just pure, pure all the time. So it's, I guess it's how do we find the best ways to, to live, to live the whole human experience with, with as little harm as possible. Mm. Mm. Perhaps that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Chapter 10. <clears throat> Amongst a lot of things that, that happen, you sort of ask questions that um, reflect to me that being as, as, a, as a woman, in, you're trying to figure out as well, or at, at least at this point, your place in, in this transformed South Africa. So not so much as a white person, but now as a woman. What are some lessons that you can, you know, impart about you know, some, some of the things, observations really that, that you can make, um, about that, that experience? About being a woman post-apartheid South Africa. Sure. What do you, have, have you found your place? Have I found my place as a woman in post-apartheid South Africa? It's a difficult one for me because I really, I, I don't, I know I'm a woman. <laughs> I'm having a baby, but I don't, can't think of myself as a woman. I don't think of myself as a woman first. I think of myself as a person first, and I always have. And I've never thought I couldn't do something because I'm a woman. It's never crossed my mind. Mm. I didn't grow up in that household. My father didn't ever say I couldn't do something because I was a woman. He would say I couldn't do something because uh, we didn't have the money for it. Interesting. Or maybe someone from our class wouldn't do that thing because mm. I grew up as from a working class Yorkshire family living in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So, but the idea that was a woman didn't really cross my head, cross my mind. So yeah, as a woman in post South Africa, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I don't carry, oh, it's so difficult. I don't carry, um, a lot of the oppression in me, in my body, in my physical body. Okay. Against, you know, the patriarchy. Like I don't hold it in me, um, with anger and frustration because I haven't, experienced it but i can completely see how others have um so but you're asking me what's my place as a woman i get you know what maybe it is um i I know with consciousness cafe with kk and i when we lead uh, facilitate conversations as women i think we are we have a nurturing um, ability we have this ability to bring people together to make them laugh to make them feel warm and welcome and and to really encourage them to um, excavate their emotions I'm not saying a man can't do this but it seems that people respond very well to consciousness cafe because it is run by two women hmm. uh, so I wonder if there's something in that that there's a sort of the Whereas men, you know, are um, often, you know, you, men are defending the cave and, you know, kind of going out hunting and, you know, the old fashioned kind of rhetoric. <laughs> yes, um, yes. But there's something about women that women were always, you know, they're always trying to find commonalities with each other. They'll try and have a conversation. They'll try and kind of bring people together more. They do have that more. Whereas my husband will always say, you know, men don't do that. We kind of check each other out. We're a bit wary of each other first. So maybe, you know, because we have this wariness in South African culture, this sort of hangover, this legacy of apartheid, where there's kind of wariness holding back from each other, everyone's checking each other out still. Maybe as women, as, and, and my role as women as Consciousness Cafe is actually to break through that and to try to bring people together to have these kind of conversations. So I feel very, I do feel very empowered and very in the right place when I'm standing with Keke in a room of like 20 people of all races and genders and actually getting them to really talk to each other. You know, I feel that that's a really good use of my skills is whether they're woman's skills or just person skills. I'm not sure. Between word books. I was going to say there are men who, who, um, 
post-consciousness cafes sure. and really trained facilitators and very skilled, and they do an amazing job. But one of them did say to me, I do think the fact that you as two women lead this organization has made people sort of lean towards it in a way that they might not men, if it was men. Books, libraries, and education in the new South Africa. You know, our pass rate is, what, 30% for mathematics? Uh-huh. If you go to township schools, there's hardly textbooks to study with, let alone libraries with actually um, books that are up to date, that are current, that are modern, that, you know, carry ideas and theories that are uh-huh. updated. Well... When I was in the Eastern Cape, I think that was when the old trans guy, that was one of the things that, you know, shocked me. It's not that just schools don't have libraries. It, you know, the one school in, uh, in Boiki village doesn't have, um, didn't have an, a, enough classrooms. So one of the classrooms was missing. So on the day that it rained, the, um, the grade ones would not come to school. So the matrix could have their class. Oh my word. Hmm. Um, but, but when it wasn't raining, the matrix had the class outside under the tree mm. in South Africa. Mm. <laughs> and people were sitting in desks that were too small for their age. Um, so that, that made me very, very angry again. And um, and then I, through the book, I came across an organization in Cape Town called The Bookery, okay. which has been building libraries in South Africa. So 92% of schools in South Africa do not have a school library. Sheesh. And um, it was considered by the Department of Education to be you know, unrealistic for that to, ha- to be amended because the, the legacy is just too great, which um, the bookery took an equal education, took a real offense with that. And they said, that's absolutely ridiculous. Let us prove to you that we can do this. And over the past, I think it's now seven years, they've built 53 libraries in schools in the Western Cape and some in Johannesburg as well. Hmm. So um, and these books are donated by people from all over the country and actually across the world. And they're up to date. They only put the best quality books in with the interesting ideas and shiny covers. There's no point giving a child a old thumbed, you know, thumbed book to read. They're not going to pick it up. Mm. You know, a poor child is going to just want a sexy new book, just like a rich child will. Mm. So they really come premise and they've had a huge impact. Um, they've been training also parents to be librarians and um, starting reading clubs at the school and getting you know people from the community to come in and sit with the children and help them to read. Because of course reading, you know, when you start reading that's the hardest part, you know, when you first try to kind of pin down those words. Um, and they've really had an impact on on the outcomes at those schools. Mm. So yeah, I mean for me I I, I feel that Getting, li- getting libraries into schools is critical, especially in communities where it's unsafe to perhaps walk to the public library mm-hmm. or catch a bus to the public library. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, then, yes, it would be great if we can all go to the public libraries and we don't need, you know, then the schools could all just share one library. Mm-hmm. But it's not always, um, it's not always possible. So, uh, yeah, I think that without, without reading, without a culture of reading, we don't learn to interrogate people's opinions other than our own. We don't get to really hear people's opinions other than our own mm. or our family. You know, you can hear them on the radio, you can hear them on social media, but actually when you sit with a book, you sit with somebody else for hour upon hour upon hour, 
Um, and it's like a really deep conversation you have. And I think that's how our minds shift when we actually sit close together, be it in person or through, through words of a book. So, yeah, I'd like to see a lot more reading in South Africa. I mean, that's also, just to say, that makes me so angry in South Africa. <laughs> oh, but books are taxed. Sure. Books are taxed. They're not taxed in, in other countries. They're not taxed mm. in the UK. So when I came to you know, South Africa, a book costs, a domestic uh, worker may earn 200 to 300 rand a day. That's the price of a book. Mm. Yeah? Mm. In the UK... A book costs seven pounds and the minimum wage is like five pounds sixty. So you work one hour on minimum wage to buy one and a half hours to buy a book. And in South Africa, you have to earn work the whole day to buy wow. a book. That puts it in perspective. <laughs> That's we don't have a culture of literacy that we and which we really need. Yeah. Um, mm. And that, for me, how we can bring the prices of books down, they, they remain this middle class item. So that only the, the sort of the middle class as the wealthy can buy them, but that just keeps everybody out forever. So and and it doesn't help because some of the people's characters that need to be influenced by these books then do not get access to to that education, and then we end up in a society where there's people that still want to act or behave in a in a barbaric manner. But if it was freely accessible, the same with education. Um, to a lot of people, then would have a better society because we'd have a society of thinkers. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Coming back to Benoni, you know, um, I guess it's 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 Benoni uh, from the Hebrew word that means "son of my suffering," which is, I guess, the opposite of Benjamin, who is "son of my plenty." What What are some of the lessons that you learned in your hometown? Um, I just want to just correct the national minimum wage in the UK because it has gone up. Oh, okay. So it's 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 actually for twenty five and over now it's seven pound eighty three for an hour, and actually five pound ninety is the eighteen to twenty twenty year olds um, amount. Interesting. So yeah, and just to clear that up. Um, so what was the question? What are the lessons from Benoni? Yes. <laughs> Get out! Keep running. <laughs> <laughs> No, sorry. Um, from growing up there, yes. Or from when I went well, well, when when you when you when you went back, and I mean, you you confronted your your principal at Benoni High. You went to the Methodist, um, you know, the the preacher, the the person in charge there. Going to the public library as well, and and reading across some of the books, and and seeing the prejudices carried in the literature, how they've you know. Captured history in a, in a manner that shuns a bad light on um, black people, which is just perpetuating that that form of racism. But all you know, the collective lessons that you learned from going to these different places and now seeing Benoni from a different perspective years later. I guess I I I think returning to Benoni to to go to meet my school teachers and to go to the libraries at school and at in town. Um, and to visit friends from that who still live there, I think I saw. Well, I think I saw very clearly, and and I think I probably already had seen it, but it was just probably reaffirming it how cloistered that society was, you know, how deeply shut down it was, um, and it was 
it was set up to, I don't know, just it's a place that's set up where you can kind of be safe, but but not be challenged in any way. Hmm. It's it, it doesn't, there's nothing there which, really, I think there's nothing there which, which challenges the mind or provokes the mind or, um, you know, yeah, the, the, I feel there's nothing there aspirational for the mind anyway. Um, and, uh, and when I met my, one of my teachers, you know, she said, she said, you know, we, we were the teachers that had come out of JAC, um, Johannesburg School of Education. Okay. And uh, she said, you know, we were the, we were a bunch of racists, you know, we're good little racists. She said, we, we, we were taught the party line and we kept, we towed the party line. And she said, the, the teachers who had come from Vitz, she said, they were much more free thinkers, much more radical, you know, mm. they questioned, they questioned what was going on, but we didn't. Um, and I think she, you know, she was very honest about how, Yeah, she was a product of a society. But what she also said, which was quite interesting, she said, I don't think we saw ourselves as racist. She said, because racism is to hate someone of another, another um, culture. Mm. But we didn't hate anybody. We just didn't think about them. They didn't even cross our minds. And I thought that was... That was very powerful. Hmm. And even I think the part where you reflect on how, what they were teaching in school, you know, during uh, military drills, history classes, for instance, how yes. it, 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 you know, it, it, in fact, take us, take us through that in, instead of me butchering it for you. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, it's interesting because she, you know, she's saying, I don't think we thought about black people. I don't think we thought about this other side of things. We just lived our own lives. But of course, we might not have actively thought, but it was permiss- it was it permeated all of life because in another way, every week from when I was in standard nine, uh, which is what grade eleven now, we had to learn to march. So the boys had been marching since they were in standard six, and they used to wear khaki to school on a on I think it was a Friday. <laughs> and they had to go to these classes and learn to march. And the girls, of course, didn't have to march initially. We had to just go do some kind of craft or, you know, something girly. I don't know. But come standard nine, um, you know, it was getting very near the end of apartheid. It was state of emergency. And we, no one explained why, but we had to start marching once a week, the girls. And at first we were absolutely appalled because we were like, oh, it's dirty and disgusting and sweaty and no thanks. And then we found out that the hot matric guys were going to be leading our squadrons. So we quickly got over it and we're <laughs> the boys again. <laughs> absolutely delighted to be marching around the field following the Anthony. So I think that's also, <laughs> that shows really beautifully. The sort of how the politics and the personal, you know, they, they brush alongside each other. And often we just totally ignore the politics because we're so immersed in our own little personal bubbles and our bubbles of our teenage years, our hormones, our families, our friends. Um, it shows how often we lose sight of the bigger picture because we're, we're caught in our little perspective. Mm. So, but actually in the book, I then I went back to meet the teacher who was in charge in charge wasn't one he was a history teacher and he was he oversaw some of the marching but he explained how he was so reluctant to do that and how he had it was against all of his ethos and he had really struggled with the headmaster at the time about that mm. it was quite interesting to get into his because he was one of the wits the wits teachers the thinking teachers mm, mm. and how 
he felt like, you know, you there you were a teacher and your job was to teach and to impart knowledge. And now you have been taught to sort of impart fear and to sort of in this kind of military order and how he felt it was such a, a tension in him. But of course, he's got a career. He's got a family. He lives in. So, again, it's that personal and political rubbing up against each other. And how do we make those choices in such a difficult society? You 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 make you make an observation. Now I'm I'm just fast tracking, um, looking at the time sure. again. Mandela and Dudu. Um, you you say most people love Mandela and um, Dudu because they speak reconciliation, but reconciliation that does not mess with their comfort zone. What do you mean by that? Do I say that in the book? Was it you? Or was it Melissa Tando? I think it's Melissa Tando that okay. says that. It's okay. Not, it's not. It's not me, but that's what she says. But yeah, do, do you would you would you concur with that? Um, in like an, an observation of um, white counterparts, I suppose. Do you know my husband was a foreign correspondent, and um, he covered the end of apartheid, and he was you know in the townships covering the third force activities and the violence at the time. And I think that you know. At the time, South Africa, at the time of the transition, South Africa was at a boiling point. And I think people often forget that. They forget what was happening. There was so, it could have gone horribly wrong and we could have ended up at civil war. And, um, we didn't. And so maybe Mandela did have to make more, um, what's the word, uh, allowances than, than, um, and, and keep the status quo more than perhaps he wanted to or perhaps people would have wanted him to. Mm-hmm. But I believe that he was he was um, overlooking a transition period, but that transition period is now over, mm. and we are now at a new stage where we have to do something else. That does not mean that what Mandela did at the time was wrong. It just meant that it was what's necessary at the time, and now something else is necessary. And instead of harping back to the past, what was what, what was done wrong then? I think we should just. Focus on what needs to be done now. That's my opinion on that. Because mm. uh, I know that, you know, white people were frightened at the time. They were people, you know, there was people saying, we're going to come and take your house. There were people stockpiling food. There were people leaving. There was third force activity. There was hectic violence in the townships. You know, that was real. You know, that really happened. So we, and we managed to transition to a peaceful country. And so now we do need to do something different. Absolutely. But different points of history require different decisions. True. And I true. think that we need to be, I think, to acknowledge that rather than to be angry that something wasn't done 20 years ago, which actually might not have been the time for it. Mm. Now is the time. So let's do it now. It's interesting you say that because I was in a conversation with the MD and, and partner at Goldman Sachs, Colin Coleman, who, who runs it in, in, in South Africa. And, you, you know, in the conversation, it came up that the general for, for South Africa during that transition or right before the decision was made that, you know, the general of the army here was, was in um, contact with, with America and they were telling America to move on the situation because things were about to, Turn upside down and he said, give us 48 hours. I said, we don't have 48 hours. And eventually he responded, I, I guess the following day. But during that conversation, when Mandela signed off on a, on a peace agreement, I guess it saved South Africa from seeing what could have happened, especially with calls like those, um, that were made. Anyway, um, fast forwarding to, you know, somewhat the, the last pages of the book. You, 
you and Melisutando have a, a very striking and very liberating conversation uh, to an extent and, and, and a very complex conversation as well. So my question to you is, how do we make white South Africans uncomfortable so that we can then inspire or, you know, start that, that snowball that will roll over to us having more complex conversations and starting actually fixing our issues? How can we make South Africans more, white South Africans more uncomfortable? Sure. <laughs> they already are. I think they're very uncomfortable at the moment. Okay. They're very uncomfortable. And I think personally, I think that we need to have conversations, but we need to do them with compassion. Okay. And I think that a lot of the um, conversations can be very finger pointing. Okay. And they can be very, um, I don't know time for white people's feelings. I'm sick of pandering to them. I'm sick of explaining things to them. I'm yes. just sick them i've had enough of them they must sort their shit out they mustn't come asking me what what to do that mentality sure um i think it's a shame because we've come from like this entire like 23 years of silence or 22 years of silence to a very quick like 18 months of right like let's wake up let's become woke let's see what's happening let's call ourselves on this uh, and then I'm not talking to you about it now, though, because I, you've had long enough. And you're like, well, really? Have we had long enough? Because sure. we've only really just started actually getting honest here. This is honesty is, is new to the table. Um, and, uh, and if you're going to start shouting at people um, or, or kind of getting very angry very quickly, um, it, I'm not saying that anger is not justified. I'm not saying that at all. I think sure, it is. Sure. But... Um, we need, well, maybe we just need facilitators like myself or others to actually hold spaces where that anger is totally allowed, totally permitted. I'm not saying it should be shut down. Sure, sure. But we need to, we need to come together so it's in a kind of safe space for that anger to come out. Because if it's one on one, one person shouting at one person, one person, um, you know, a, a radio presenter shouting at people, pointing fingers, all that's going to happen are people are going to retreat into boxes and retreat behind walls. So I feel um, collective spaces where we can get uncomfortable together um, are absolutely critical. But they, and then to have what happens in those spaces, you see a lot of compassion come up. You just do. South Africans quite like each other. They also like a good laugh. True. So you'll see a lot of humor will come into those spaces, a lot of um, mutual feeling, and actually resonance with each other's stories. So, Yeah. I think we just need to have a lot more compassion and a lot more and, and realize that this is a, is a long process. We're, we're talking how, how many years of colonialism? 400? 500? It's a lot. You know? Yeah. Well, we're going to start in 18 months. You no. know, after 20 years of silence and 18 months, we're going to fix it. No. We're not. We have no. to slow down, have patience, listen to each other. And I totally understand how some people aren't interested and don't want to listen because they just want to get on with their own lives. And they're already tired. I understand that too. So I also say to people, someone asked me this actually at the book launch in Mabonet, and she said, how do you manage to to sort of investigate yourself and interrogate yourself? Mm-hmm. And you, do you do it all the time? And I said, no, you can't. You know, you cannot. Sometimes you have to just take a step back from this stuff for a few months and not be involved. And then when you're ready, step forward and be part of it again. Um you know, realizing that the personal and political are always going to live side by side. True. And going to brush against each other. And sometimes you have all the strength you need and 
and time you want for the political. And sometimes your personal is so overwhelming. You're having a baby, your husband's got cancer, you've lost your job, whatever it is. And then you can't and you have to retreat. But it's mm. the compassion to realize that we're all living these double lives all the time. Mm. And to see that we can't always participate. Mm. But when we can, and when you have the energy, yeah, then give it a go. You know, go to one consciousness cafe or, you know, make, reach out one olive branch. Um, and I think it's probably a lot more people doing that than we actually realize. But of course, that never gets the headlines, does mm. it? Never. Mm. Mm. One thing that you want people to take out of uh, this conversation and the book. It's a that's, difficult question to ask for one, but. <laughs> no, that's the question I can probably answer. Um, but holding yourself to account or, well, Socrates said, you know, the, um, the unexamined life is not worth living. True. And I really feel to live a, 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 a whole life in South Africa and a full and of rich life, um, that we, we all need to look into our hearts and our minds a little bit more and introspect and sort of take ourselves on a personal journey of, of transformation. Hmm. And, and that, no, that no one can do it for you and it's hard and you'll fail <laughs> and you'll get hurt along the way. But actually it's so worth it because my life has changed so much from um, writing this book. And I just feel like I live in whole, all of South Africa now. Mm. That, that I, I can walk anywhere and be part of any community. Mm. Not 100% part, but I can know that, yes, you are my fellow South Africans and we all live under the sky and we all struggle with this legacy in different ways. But this is our collective struggle. Mm. Um, mm. I feel that now. Um, and, uh, that feels a lot better than just living behind a high fence, um, you know, with a, with a, with a panic button in your hand. Wow. Thank you so much for, for joining us on the youth leadership platform. Uh, it has been really a pleasure for me to, um, have you on the show and I hope that, um, our listeners that are listening will feel the same or will share the sentiments and, that this self-introspective conversation about, you know, the politics of, 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 of South Africa and people living within that political context will go in deep and, and will help people to, to start moving, um, in the direction of, 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 of changing things. Any parting words? Well, I just wanted to tell people where they could buy the book. Okay. So, it- Last where we belong. It's in stock at um, seven exclusive bookstores um, in uh, Stellenbosch, Somerset West, um, Mall of the South in Johannesburg, um, Durban Airport. Oh, I can't remember the other ones. Um, <laughs> Table Bay Mall, and it's also Love Books in in Melville, um, Bridge Books in Maboneng in Joburg. Mm-hmm. All of the Wordsworth bookstores in Cape Town, and also at uh, the Book Lounge in Rural Street in Cape Town. So. And also, if you want to buy it online, you can buy it from Amazon, um, which and then they ship to you. Oh, okay. So, Your social so media you, handles? Um, it's at writer CLB. At writer CLB. CLB, that's my Twitter handle, yeah. And, um, and also I write a blog called unpopularessays.com where I write about, um, all sorts of stuff, including this. And there's an extract from the book, actually. Um, up there at the moment that people can read as a pro taster. Awesome. You're working on a book. I, I have it. I gather. 
No, I'm not. I'm working on a baby Bongani. <laughs> <laughs> the book, the, the next book has to wait. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll talk about that a little bit later. Right now, it's 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 still the it's still the working phase. You don't talk about books at that phase. Does the cancer story have a happy ending? The cancer story. Yeah, cancer. Cancer story. Yeah. So cancer. I was thinking Dorothy. Um, yes, my husband had two kinds of cancer, but he is um, he's doing very well at the moment. Thank you very much for asking. And he's looking forward to becoming a daddy. So exciting. Awesome. awesome. Thank you so yeah. much for your transparency. And like I said, you know, for, for such a, an important conversation on the youth leadership platform. And I think you are a leader in your rights, and especially in, in driving conversations like this and, and, and really enforcing um, and upholding the principles of what it will mean for us to move to being a rainbow nation because it starts with such um, self-introspective conversations. And that's where we will draw, I guess, the necessary courage, strength and understanding that we need to move forward. Until thank next time. You. Sorry, thank sorry. I said thank you, Bangani. I'll keep those words very dear to my heart. Thank you so much. Awesome. I'm I'm looking forward actually to meeting up in sometime in in September. Absolutely, awesome. with a baby. I think you're good with babies. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, awesome. For um, our listeners, this has been another exciting episode of the Youth Leadership Platform. YLP Cliff Central Twitter and Instagram, Youth Leadership Platform on Facebook at Simply Bongani across all social media platforms. Tell us what you want to hear more, guests that you want us to have on, on, on the show, what's working, what's not working. Share this with your friends and family. And until the next episode, good day and God bless. This is cliffcentral.com.